the signaling that sense to mitochondria is there is only way you could possibly be in ketosis every day, and that is you are starving to death. And everything else that eats fuel becomes your enemy. And so muscles are the biggest enemy of fueling. And so you've got to produce insulin resistance to keep those muscles from getting the fuel that you mitochondria have to have. And so to me, it's no wonder that we see insulin resistance develop in long-term ketosis. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. Hello and welcome to A Whole New Level. This is Dr. Casey Means, co-founder and chief medical officer of Levels. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Stephen Gundry to the podcast today. Dr. Stephen Gundry is an incredible independent thinker in the health space. And we're gonna talk all about his new book, The Keto Code, which is going to be fascinating because many of the things you think you know about why ketones help us are actually probably wrong. If you don't know the ins and outs of a concept called mitochondrial uncoupling and how it is critical for all aspects of our health, weight, and longevity, stay tuned. You're going to be blown away by this conversation. Dr. Gundry has an incredible professional history, which I can't even scratch the surface of in this intro, but he is a world-famous cardiothoracic surgeon. He is a top heart surgeon in the world with several medical patents to his name. He has hundreds and hundreds of scientific papers and book chapters that he's written. He's written eight incredible books. He was the chairman of cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda and has performed more pediatric heart transplants than almost anyone else in the entire world. So we are so lucky to have him here to chat with us. He actually left his surgical career when he realized how food could prevent almost 100% of heart disease and totally shifted his career towards focusing on getting people to learn how to eat properly and avoid heart disease and surgery. Welcome to A Whole New Level, Dr. Gundry. Well, thanks for having me. So thrilled to have you here. So I'd love to start by having you share a bit about your professional evolution. Um, we share a similar thread in our paths in that we left the surgical world in order to help patients through food. And I'm just so interested in how this unfolded for you. So can you can you talk a little bit about how after doing like thousands of heart surgeries and being so deep in the cardiothoracic surgery world, you decided to leave and realize that you could maybe make possibly a bigger impact by helping people understand their diets and their holistic health? Yeah, my, my life changed. Uh, it's about 27 years ago now uh, when I met uh, a patient from Miami, Florida, who I call Big Ed in all my books. He's a real person. He was a 48-year-old gentleman who was diagnosed with inoperable coronary artery disease. That means you couldn't put stents in, you couldn't do bypasses because everything was clogged up. And he would go around the country uh, to centers uh, like mine at Loma Linda, where idiots like myself would take on just about anybody. I just, I guess, ego or whatever. Now, and he, everywhere he went, 
uh, he was turned out and nothing you can do for him. So he had spent about six months doing this and he arrived uh, at my office at Loma Linda and he brought in the angiogram, the movie of his heart from Florida six months earlier. And I looked at it and I said, you know, I, I, I got to agree with everybody. There's, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do for you. They're right. And he says, yeah, yeah, that's what everybody says. But here's the deal. I've been on a diet for the last six months and I've lost 45 pounds. Now, this guy was 265 when I met him, big Ed. Um, so he was over 300 when all this happened. And he says, I've gone to a health food store and I've, I've, I've been taking all these supplements. And he had actually brought in this giant shopping bag full of supplements. And he said, you know, maybe I did something in here. And I'm like, well, you know, good for you um, for losing weight, but that's not going to do anything in there. And I know what you did with those supplements. You made expensive urine, which is what I firmly believe. He said, you wasted your money. And he said, look, you know, I've come all this way. Why don't we just get another angiogram and let's see. Yeah. Okay. So we do. And in six months time, this guy cleans out 50% of the blockages in his coronary arteries, 50%. And I've never seen anything like that. And I'm going, I don't know, wait a minute, you know, tell me about this diet of yours. And so he starts talking and I go, wait a minute. Uh, I, back in the dark ages, um, I had a special major at Yale University where we could design a major and have a thesis, very much like a master's program, and defend our thesis. And my thesis was you could take a grade ape, manipulate its food supply, manipulate its environment, prove you would arrive at a human being. And so I actually defended my thesis and got an honors and then gave it to my parents and went off to become a famous art surgeon. So as he's talking about what he was eating, I went, wait a minute, this is my, my stupid thesis at, at Yale. This is, you're, you're on, quote, the ancestral diet. And I go, well, let me see that bag of supplements. Now, I'm very famous for protecting the heart during heart surgery. I invented a bunch of catheters, patented them, and secret sauce that we'd put down the veins and arteries of hearts. And... I started looking through his supplements and several of the things he was taking, I was mixing in my secret sauce and I was putting it down the veins and the arteries. And it never occurred to me to swallow the dumb things. So I, you know, I call my parents who were in San Diego and I say, hey, you know, you still have my thesis. And they say, oh yeah, you know, it's in the shrine. And I said, well, you know, send it up because I was a big fat heart surgeon. I was running 30 miles a week, going to the gym one hour a day, eating a healthy, low-fat diet. And, you know, I had migraine headaches doing baby heart transplants and, you know, arthritis. I had, I had braces on my knees to, to run and, you know, pre-diabetes and horrible cholesterol. And so I put myself on my thesis and I started taking a bunch of supplements. And, you know, I lost 50 pounds the first year. And, what happened was I started putting my patients that I operated on, on this program and sending them to Costco or Trader Joe's for supplements. There wasn't an Amazon back then. And lo and behold, um, these people's diabetes went away, their high blood pressure went away, their arthritis went away. And I'm going, what, about a year into this, uh, my wife still calls it Black Friday. I looked in the mirror before I went into work at Loma Linda 
And I said, you know, I've got this all wrong. Uh, I shouldn't operate on people and then teach them how to eat to avoid me in the future. I should teach them how to eat and they'll probably be able to avoid me in the first place. And so, I mean, what a stupid career choice. Um, I mean, at the height of my career to say, you know, I've got this backwards. And so I actually resigned my position at Loma Linda. And I moved you know, a few miles down the road to Palm Springs, where I opened up a, a clinic. And I asked people, look, I, I want to, you know, give you a list of foods to eat, not eat, and then want to send you to Costco or Trader Joe's. And I want to draw blood on you every three months that uh, will insurance or Medicare will pay for. And you're my research project, okay? And everybody, you know, goes, yeah, okay. And but that uh, you may have found out as a, as a former surgeon, teaching people how to eat um, is not. Uh, let's just say the monetary benefits of teaching people how to eat is not as good as uh, surgery. But my wife, you know, bless her heart, said, "Hey, you know, um, you're in this, you know." for a purpose and you have a belief and okay, let's, let's give this a go. And that was you know, 25 years ago. So anyhow, so doggone it, big Ed, look what you've done. It is such an amazing and inspiring story. Um, and I think what people listening might not realize is that this concept of reversal of atherosclerotic heart disease. So like true blockages in the heart, like, we're basically taught in medical school that doesn't happen. Like sure. this is not something. And so that I can imagine that that was just like a, a big moment um, of like, what what is going on here? I've got to dig into this. And right. so I think even to this day, that's still a paradigm that's quite um, in the water of like, you don't reverse heart disease once it happens. And so I, so it's just incredible that you have now spent the last, what, almost 20 years or so yeah, years. Yeah. really preaching the power of, food. And it's also interesting to me that it kind of started with supplements because now it feels like a lot of your work has moved really into whole foods, unprocessed diet, really using food as medicine realm. Um, but that there was a role for supplements and the, the end of your book, which I think you talk about the supplements you take every day. So I, I, I assume that your perspective on expensive urine has changed quite a bit since then. H how many do you take every day? There were like probably what, 40 in the book there. Oh, I take, I take about 120 different things in the morning and about 80 at night. So I under, underballed it by about three times, but yeah. And so that's, that's, that's so fascinating. Um, so I could just talk to you about your story all day, but I want to, I want to make sure we get to the book because it's such an amazing book. Um, and a lot of people in the levels community are really interested in the keto diet because obviously we're trying to keep our blood sugar more stable. Um, sure. But what I love about this book is that it shows a very different picture of the keto diet that is actually much more balanced, much more focused on colorful plant foods and a really diverse uh, probiotic rich, prebiotic rich diet. So your book, Keto Code, breaks down how a lot of what people think about what is beneficial about the keto diet is actually for different reasons than they think. And that a lot of benefits of the keto diet can actually be more impactful if you shift up uh, the the sort of real focus on macros and bring in a lot more plant food and a lot less macro tracking. So can you start by talking about why our conventional dialogue about the keto diet is flawed and what people are missing? Yeah. So um, I, I've had a ketogenic version of my diet from, you know, the plant paradox onward. And 
One of the things that, and it worked very well, still works very well, but one of the things it's based on is uh, medium chain triglycerides, MCT oils. And anyone who actually looks at the lists of the of my ketogenic diet, even in that book says, whoa, there are a lot of plant carbohydrates in here. And how the heck is that a ketogenic diet? And yet it worked you know, very well and still does. So when I was writing my, my last book, The Energy Paradox, um, I like to back up my explanations with you know, cold, hard research. And I, I firmly believe that ketones were, you know, a, a great fuel and that your, your brain loved them, your muscles loved them. They were the perfect fuel and that ketones being in ketosis made you an efficient fat burner. And that's why you lost weight. Sounds really good to me. Well, so I wanted to back this up. So, um, work out of Harvard and, and also the NIH in humans show the exact opposite. Um, at, at, at full ketosis, only 30% of energy needs are met by burning ketones. The rest is primarily free fatty acids. And even at full ketosis, the brain, which supposedly thinks ketones are the greatest thing since sliced bread, uh, but we don't want sliced bread, but, um, no, uh, the brain still needs 30 to 40% glucose as, as a fuel. So that's a problem. The other problem is if you look at the ketogenic uh, literature in uh, athletic work, even Vogel and Finney would say you have to get keto adapted and it may take weeks, but the work out of Harvard with Dr. Owens showed that at, at ketosis, at three days, the muscle's preferred fuel is ketones. And then it falls off and becomes free fatty acids. So wait a minute. Finney and Vogel are saying, well, you're going to, you're, your exercise tolerance is going to really plummet for maybe two weeks. And yet muscles do best with ketones at three days. So you can't have it both ways. Uh, and so, so wait a minute. So ketones aren't all this amazing fuel. And the work in race walkers shows that in race walkers, you actually have to have far higher oxygen consumption to match the ability that you would get from more of a carbohydrate-based diet. So all of these human studies are, are sorry, they're really saying, well, wait a minute, uh, ketones aren't this amazing fuel. And if in fact, ketones made you an efficient fat burner, what's the problem? Well, as we all know, fat has nine calories per gram and protein and sugars have carbohydrates have four calories per gram. So if you were really an efficient fat burner, then efficiency means you get more mileage out of a gallon of gasoline. So now, wait a minute, you're eating more than twice the amount of calories when you're eating fat, and you're telling me you are an efficient fat burner, so you all ought to be gaining weight if that's actually true. And 
Some people, in fact, do gain weight on the ketogenic diet. A number of my patients do, like I talk about in the book. So something's all not, not right with that idea. So, so what in fact happens? Well, you, you go back to the seizure literature um, and the ketogenic diet, the actual name ketogenic diet was coined in 1930 at the Mayo Clinic as a anti-seizure diet in kids. And the original ketogenic diet was 80% fat, 10% carbohydrate, and 10% protein. And it was very effective. Uh, over 50% of kids got major reductions in seizures. Uh, the problem was, as any of us who have had kids or now have grandkids, it's nearly impossible to deprive carbohydrates from children, number one. And number two, it's pretty impossible to take carbohydrates away from adults. <laughs> so... What I found fascinating in the, in the seizure literature was the ketogenic diet fell off uh, when drugs came along. But in the 1990s, it had a resurgence as an MCT oil-based diet. And what they found was that they could get the exact same effects using MCT oil as the predominant fat, but they could introduce far more, far more carbohydrates and far more proteins and still achieve the anti-seizure effect. And that got me really intrigued because now here's a workable uh, diet, if you will, without this overload of you know, just concentrated fats. And so I wanted to know, okay, well, if ketones aren't this miracle fuel, what exactly are they doing? And it turns out a professor by the name of Mark Brand uh, wrote a beautiful paper in the year 2000, and everybody has to read it. I hope you've read it. And he argued, it's called Uncoupling to Survive. And the, uh, on the surface, it makes absolutely no sense until you begin to understand what he was trying to say. In extremis, if you're starving to death, you are pouring out ketones right and left. Mitochondria are the final common thing that keeps us from death. And if you're starving to death, mitochondria have to be protected at all costs. And the way you protect mitochondria is basically to not make them work so hard. And as I go through in the book, there is an elaborate system that we have built into my, our mitochondria where we can take a lot of the protons uh, that would normally be coupled to uh, oxygen and to produce ATP and uncouple them from oxidative phosphorylation and basically waste protons out of trapdoors, emergency exits. And in that way, the mitochondria doesn't have to work as hard and is protected from the significant damage that occurs during oxidative phosphorylation that I've ramble on in the book with the mito club and everything. So he argued, and then subsequently went on to show in some fascinating papers that if you look at very long-lived human beings, they have the most uncoupled mitochondria of, of anybody. And now you go, wow. 
Now, one thing I didn't put in the book, but I, I like to, to mention on a podcast, the other part of that is, okay, wait a minute. You're starving to death and you're going to tell mitochondria to waste fuel. That's really stupid. You should tell mitochondria to be very fuel efficient because there's not much left. Well, part two of that is, okay, you're, you've got to tell mitochondria to protect themselves. But simultaneously, you tell mitochondria to make more of themselves to carry the workload. And I like to use the example of a dog sled. Let's suppose we have a dog sled and we have one dog pulling the sled. Well, the dog can pull the sled, but you're not going to go very fast and you're not going to go very far before the dog gets tired out. Why don't we hitch five more dogs to the dog sled? And just for the analogy, the dogs of mitochondria. And now we're going to go a lot faster. We got a six dog sled. We're going to go a lot farther, but we now have to feed six dogs instead of one dog. And so the beauty of mitochondria, as you and I know, is they have their own DNA and they can divide without the cell they're living in dividing. So you have these two signals. One is protect yourself at all costs by wasting fuel. Number two, make a whole lot more of yourself so that each individual mitochondria has to do less work than the one we started with. And the consequence is, yeah, you are actually, if you're doing this right, going to lose some weight. Um, but the overall benefit is rather substantial. And I go on to point out, maybe you'll agree, long-term ketosis, 24-hour, week after week after week, the signaling that says to mitochondria is there is only way you could possibly be in ketosis every day, every day, and that is you are starving to death. And everything else that eats fuel becomes your enemy. And so muscles are the biggest enemy of fuel eating. And so you've got to produce insulin resistance to keep those muscles from getting the fuel that you mitochondria have to have. And so to me, it's no wonder that we see insulin resistance develop in long-term ketosis. In fact, in my first book years ago, there's a wonderful athlete study that they took athletes and put them to bed rest for 48 hours. And every one of them became insulin resistant within 48 hours of bed rest. And you go, well, that's kind of weird. Well, no, it's not. The only reason a trained athlete would be at bed rest for 48 hours was that he was injured and he couldn't get food. And so this protective mechanism automatically kicks in. And that is protect the mitochondria at all costs. And who cares about everybody else? Because you know, get those energy hungry muscles, you know, out of the, out of the system. It's so fascinating. I, so just to kind of summarize what I'm hearing, which is just so, it's so interesting is that really the benefit of ketones is not so much this conventional ideology that we're all, we all talk about and throw around these terms so liberally, which is like, oh, ketones are the best fuel source. The brain loves ketones, et cetera, et cetera. But it's more that they're a signaling molecule, which is actually telling the mitochondria that there, a certain state is present, i.e. maybe starvation, and that they need to protect themselves by 
having mitogenesis, producing more of them. So each one has less work. And then also doing this process of mitochondrial uncoupling where they're actually just leaking out, wasting protons. It, it, protons or electrons? Yeah. Protons. Pro- protons. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so this is, but this is the part I wanted to dig in with you more because I was having trouble wrapping my head around how does the wasting of protons lead to weight loss? Um, is it because you have you are also stimulating more mitochondria and so they're, you're more efficient at burning through free fatty acids that might otherwise go to fat storage? Or, or what is the mechanism behind how mitochondrial uncoupling leads to, to weight loss? You, you literally have to have more calories to produce the same amount of ATP. And yeah, so it's literally true fuel wasting. And it, 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 you know, on the initial take, it's like, what, what a stupid idea. But as I talk about in the book, at rest, you and I, our mitochondria are 30% uncoupled. In other words, at rest, you and I waste 30% of all the food we eat just by putting these protons through these emergency exits. Mm-hmm. Now you go, what the world? That's a really dumb design until then you go, okay, well, what's happening with that? Well, one of the theories is that we're warm, warm-blooded animals and uncoupling produces heat. Uh, we know that brown fat is brown because the mitochondria are so dense that it's literally brown under the microscope. But these guys are profoundly uncoupled, and that's how the heat production is, is accomplished. So, but yeah, at, at rest, we uncouple, our, our mitochondria are 30% uncoupled are 30% less potentially efficient than they they could be. Mm-hmm. So, and then that goes, okay, why, what's the other reason? And that's because as, as more and more of us are getting focused on mitochondrial dysfunction as, you know, the, one of the big underlying factors in, in almost all disease processes, uh, all disease processes, is that mitochondria making ATP is hard work and incredibly damaging. So probably at baseline, um, preventing that damage from happening is is really kind of built into our basic design. So whether it's making heat, whether it's preventing, you know, undue oxidative stress in mitochondria, mm-hmm. I mean, when, when these, uh, there's five uncoupling proteins and when they were discovered, I think in 1978, a long time ago, everyone, what the heck are these guys doing here? You know, why, why, why are, what are these guys doing? And, and now we know that, boy, these things are actually really essential. The other cool thing, I think there's, uh, I talk about in the book, there's the, the, the theory of of aging that goes into uh, the cost of living hypothesis and aging. And that is in general, uh, very small animals uh, have very short lifespans because they have a very high metabolic rate in general. And very large animals in general have a much longer lifespan because in general, they have a lower metabolic rate. And that, that, that makes us all feel good uh, until you look at birds. And birds screw the entire idea up because birds in general are very small. 
And yet, you know, a parrot in captivity can live 100, 100 years, 80 to 100 years. In fact, years ago, I wanted to buy a, um, a cockatoo <laughs> and went to this crazy bird lady. And she said, you know, how old are you? And I said, hey, I'm, you know, 40. And she said, well, who's going to take care of the bird after you die? And I go, huh? And she said, you have to show me, you know, is it going to be your child? Is it going to be your sister? Because the bird is going to outlive you. And I'm going, wow, this is a nutcase. And, <laughs> but she wasn't nut. She was right. And, and a hummingbird in captivity can live 10 years. And a hummingbird has a heart rate of 1,100 beats a minute, you know. Yeah. And so people go, well, what the heck? Well, it turns out the birds have incredibly uncoupled mitochondria. Mm -hmm. And so, man, Brand's right. Uncoupling to survive carries a lot of weight with me now. <laughs> no pun intended. There were some great puns in the book. People should definitely read it for that reason alone. Um, but some good fasting puns. Um, that's so, I, I don't want to get sidetracked on the the hummingbird. I was thinking about a lot uh, last, like after reading your book and because um, you'd think like they need so much ATP for their high heart rate. And, and so why would they uncouple so much? Like, because they actually have to produce all that ATP and they're, they're doing so much work to bring in all the nectar. Um, it, it's to protect that energy producing machine, the, the, the mitochondria. And to make more mitochondria so that they yeah. end up constitutionally building more mitochondria. And the really cool thing, like I mentioned in hummingbirds, so they actually, uh, they use retinol is actually their uncoupling agent that they get in nectar. And what's fascinating is when we give them all the colored sugar, they actually don't, aren't getting any retinol. So maybe uh, we're doing them a disfavor by doing Interesting, yeah. interesting. Um, so the next super cool part of the book, so we've talked about mitochondrial uncoupling and really like the takeaway is like, you don't actually want to go on a keto diet you want to go on a mitochondrial uncoupling diet. And that's what you're doing with the keto diet, but people aren't even realizing it. And this is where the magic is, is that there's all these other things. If the end goal is really mitochondrial uncoupling, well, there's like 10 other things you can do to mitochondrial uncouple. And guess what? They don't involve just totally restricting your carb intake and it can actually bring in all these other nutrients that are beautiful for the body. So I'd love for you to talk about like what are some of the other foods and lifestyle choices that also stimulate a mitochondrial um, uncoupling process that can kind of give us the benefits of a keto diet without the intense restriction of a lot of healthful foods. One of the one of the shocking findings in the book is uh, back in World War One, it was noted that uh, factory workers in Germany and France uh, were very skinny. And despite eating a lot, and they were running actually high temperatures, and nobody knew why that was until actually the 1920s when they discovered that there was a compound in the making of gunpowder called 2,4-dinitrophenol. Phenol, remember that word, phenol. Hmm. And it's called 2,4-DNP. And it was noted that when people were exposed to 2,4-DNP, that they actually started losing weight and they started running high temperatures. So a couple of Stanford doctors in 1930 began giving patients DNP as a weight loss drug. 
And over 100,000 prescriptions for DMP were written in the United States alone in the 1930s. And it was miraculous. At low dose, DNP, you could lose a pound a week. At high dose, you would lose five pounds a week. I mean, miraculous. You, you know, le levels would be out of business. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what was happening was um, these people, it turns out DNP was the first oral mitochondrial uncoupler. The problem with it was it wasn't making any more mitochondria. It was not producing mitogenesis. Mm -hmm. So people lost tremendous amounts of weight. They ran very high temperatures because they were generating heat from, and they started having thyroid issues. Mm -hmm. But probably the worst part was people developed cataracts. And this was before cataract surgery. And I joke, you know, it'd, it'd be great to see what you look like in your skinny dress, but you're blind. Um, right? Oh. And, and then people started dying. Because quite frankly, like you were mentioning, they ran out of ATP. Yeah. They were so uncoupled, they literally could not make enough ATP to mm. live. So the FDA, newly formed in 1938, banned DNP from uh, prescription. But when I discovered that literature, I go, wait a minute, phenol, where have I heard the word phenol? Oh, polyphenol. And that's lots of phenols. And so, you know, what is it about this phenol ring that's so interesting? And what's really cool is um, plants have mitochondria. They're called chloroplasts. And their mitochondria, chloroplasts, are damaged by the very thing they need to produce energy, which is photons from sunlight. We need oxygen, and oxygen is damaging to our mitochondria. So... Plants have to be protected from mitochondrial damage from sunlight, and they produce polyphenols to uncouple their chloroplasts so that the sunlight won't damage them. And, you know, we see polyphenols all the time in the fall because the green leaves turn all pretty yellows and oranges and reds and purples. And those are the polyphenols that have always been there in the leaves, but now we can see them. So what happens is, so those polyphenols were being used by the plant to protect, to uncouple its mitochondria. So then we eat polyphenols. We don't absorb polyphenols very well, but it turns out our gut bacteria absolutely love polyphenols. It's actually a prebiotic fiber for gut bacteria. They in turn make those polyphenols bioavailable. And so now the plant's polyphenols are given to us to protect our mitochondria by uncoupling mitochondria. And every time I think about this, I start thinking about the Lion King and the circle of life and, you know, oh, we eat the plants and then we, yeah. So these plant compounds were designed to uncouple their mitochondria to protect them. And we then get the benefit. So the point of all that is when we say eat the rainbow, what we're really saying is eat polyphenol containing foods. And when you look at like the Mediterranean diet as an example, uh, it's just this cornucopia of mm. polyphenol containing foods. You look at the Okinawan diet. The Okinawan diet, for the traditional, what 
Okinawan diets, 85% of their calories came from the purple sweet potato. Mm. And the purple sweet potato is just a giant hunk of anthocyanin, you know, mm. polyphenols. So, wow. It's it's amazing. And I think um, it's it's also interesting because you talked about this in the book. I think a lot of people think that the reason we want to have polyphenols is for antioxidant uh, capacity. And you were saying, you know, it's actually so much, maybe not even that, to, like maybe not that at all. Actually, a lot of it is really what this is doing to the gut and then the gut producing metabolic byproducts that are incredibly helpful for our, for, for upregulating uncoupling proteins. Is that accurate? Yeah. Okay. That's exactly it. But one thing I want to just make sure I understand from like the molecular side is you talked about that the polyphenols, these rings are protecting the plant from sunlight. And so is this, does this mean that let's say you have a lot of sun energy, you're driving a lot of chemical reactions through the chloroplast that's going to generate like oxidative stress and reactive oxygen species. And you don't want that type of damage in huge quantities. And so the plant has to just like release valve some of that essentially extra energy substrate is that is that right or yeah the, 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 so photon damage is the equivalent of oxidative damage in us so photons sunlight is damaging uh any of us know that but the plant requires photons to you know produce energy so what's really interesting you know we we've known in uh, in winemaking that the the, the closer the vines are grown to mm -hmm. the sun, the higher the elevation, the more polyphenols the plant makes because it's far more exposed. And then you go, so then you go, you know, okay, we've known that for a long time. And now we know, oh, that's why they make more polyphenols is to, it's getting far more hammered by sunlight. And so you've got to repair the damage. The other thing that's fascinating that I talked about in the book is melatonin. Yeah. So plants are a great source of melatonin. And I laugh, say your plant doesn't need to go to sleep. <laughs> so what the ding dong is the plant making melatonin for? And that's because there are actually only two antioxidants that have ever been discovered in mitochondria. And that's melatonin and glutathione. And I, I talk about in the book, uh, for years, I used to present a, a paper at the World Congress of Polyphenols, and the the chairman, um, Dr. Edes, Marvin Edes, would, one I remember distinctly was in Lisbon, and he got up to this big room of researchers, and he said, if any of you here actually think that polyphenols are antioxidants, you could leave right now, because I don't have the time to show you why that's not true. And I went, what? Huh? I better leave. But he was absolutely right. They they are not antioxidants. And our traditional antioxidants, like vitamin C, vitamin E, have no effect on mitochondrial antioxidation. It's melatonin and it's glutathione. Now, vitamin C can regenerate glutathione or, and vitamin C can regenerate vitamin E, but it's not for mitochondria. It's so interesting. So if if the plant analogy about sunlight essentially upregulating polyphenol composition for protective mechanisms, I'm curious why in humans, essentially that excess stress from like, let's say excess glucose, for instance, I, you mentioned that glucose inhibits mitochondrial uncoupling, but in my mind, it would be like, oh, well, if the 
mitochondria was getting this excess signal of energy that was driving it towards essentially going to drive towards increased oxidative stress and whatnot, would this, wouldn't that trigger, like, wouldn't it make sense that the cell would want to trigger uncoupling to kind of have a release valve for that? But it's actually the opposite. It's exactly opposite because way back when it was feast or famine. Right. And for instance, I've written, there's actually huge books written about this. Great apes only gain weight during fruit season. Um, only. And, you know, we inherited those genes. Um, and so during caloric excess, we would want mitochondria to shuttle any excess into fat storage. That would be what you would want. And so, but that didn't happen, you know, every day. We, we now have, you know, 365 days of endless summer. And, you know, we, we're always in fruit season. Yeah. And we're always in caloric excess season. So we don't have a genetic program that understands that this would happen 365 days a year. Yes. Yes. That, 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 that really brings it together. And, and two awesome books that talk about this from this year as well. Um, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat by Rick Johnson and then David Perlmutter's Drop Acid, both of which talk about what you're speaking to, the uricase mutation and various other vitamin C related mutations that basically make it so like what you said, when we are exposed to this fructose, high fructose food, you know, the harvest, the body's like stored all as fat because that was our survival, you know, mechanism. Yeah. And we didn't have, and now we have it. It is harvest every single day. Um, but there were several other things you mentioned that can upregulate, uh, uncoupling, uh, process in the book. Um, things like, I think I remember like vinegar and even red yeah. light and MCT oil. So what is kind of like your go-to list of like, these are mitochondrial uncouplers diet and lifestyle wise that people should be thinking about? Yeah. So the great thing about MCT oil is that MCTs, medium chain triglycerides, um, are absorbed totally different than any other fat. They absorb directly without a chylomicron carrier from our gut. And they go directly to the liver where they are instantly converted into ketones. So you can get ketones by having MCT. So since we're talking about fruit, you could have a bowl of fruit and have a tablespoon of MCT oil, and you would actually produce ketones, even though you ate that old stupid bowl of fruit. Um, so that's a really great trick and explains why I use MCT, uh, you know, in, in my program. The other thing that I think is exciting is uh, MCTs were named for the Latin uh, word for goat, which is capra. So capric acid, caprylic acid, et cetera. It turns out that 30% of the fats in goat and sheep milk are MCTs, medium chain triglycerides. And so you can actually get MCTs by eating goat yogurt, goat kefir, sheep yogurt, sheep kefir, sheep cheese, goat cheese, and get the benefits that you go, oh, wait a minute, cheese, cheese is bad for you. Well, it turns out uh, in, in an upcoming book, some of the longest living people in the world are goat and sheep herders. And I go into why that is because they're uncoupling their mitochondria because they're, they're making ketones, which is kind of fun. And the other thing that I talk about, we're now beginning to realize that cold therapy and heat and heat therapy 
actually are working uh, by producing uncoupling of mitochondria. And I think the, the unifying theme is, okay, mitochondria, if they sense an incoming stressful event, whether that is starvation, whether that is extreme heat, whether that is extreme cold, uh, they go into, we got to protect ourselves at all costs. And the mechanism that is built in is we uncouple. And because hard times are about to happen. I, I learned this as a heart surgeon. Um, we, not me, but colleagues discovered heat shock protein. And we use that in heart surgery to prepare hearts for a prolonged period of ischemia, cross-clamp the aorta. And again, we said, oh, there's this miracle protein called heat shock protein and it protects the heart. Oh, good. We want that. Well, it turns out that heat shock protein uncouples mitochondria. And you go, son of a gun. Uh, and the same thing with, um, you know, acetic acid, vinegar. Vinegar is a short chain fatty acid and short chain fatty acids uh, like vinegar, like acetic acid, like butyric acid, butyrate are really good mitochondrial couplers. And getting back to how we started this, you really want your gut microbiome to have a lot of things to eat to produce, you know, butyrate, to produce acetate, to produce other postbiotics that I've been, that I've written about. And you, you're not going to get that from, you know, a ketogenic diet. Mm. Fiber, fiber. We love I, fiber. I'm a fiber evangelist. So I was just like, ha had a lot of hell yeses during reading your book. Cause it's just, it, and it, I've always felt this way about the, I mean, about the keto diet. I'm mostly plant-based and I mean, honestly follow very similar to like what's in your book in terms of what I eat. And I've been able to stay with my ketones actually being between 0.7 and 1.2 most days on a largely plant-based diet. And it's actually, yeah. the book really helped me figure out why this kind of might be the case. Um, and so there's just, there's not one path to get to this end state, which I think is what your book really opens up for people. It doesn't have to be this really restrictive thing. It can use the physiology to, under, to understand all the different ways you can, you can get at the same positive outcome. Um, and so, and fiber and basically supporting the microbiome so they can support you being a really big one. One question I had kind of getting molecular here about short chain fatty acids was, are, are they acting as genetic regulators in the sense that they're actually like upregulating uncoupling protein synthesis, or is it acting more in the cell at the level of the mitochondria? Like what, what is actually happening with these? Um, Cause we talk about searching fatty acids all the time. And I, I was like, I don't know if I'm a hundred percent certain how exactly they work. Well, so for instance, butyrate uh, serves as a substrate for beta-hydroxybutyrate, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the, the active ketone in us. But butyrate in its own right uncouples mitochondria as well as acetate. But I think the other thing that's exciting about these short-chain fatty acids is they are really uh, histone decarboxylase inhibitors. And for those of us who really don't particularly want cancer in our lives, uh, that's how cancer cells, you know, grow and, and reproduce. So if you have an inhibitor of histone decarboxylase, which butyrate and acetate are, 
I would want a lot of that, you know, in my in my gut. And the exciting thing about acetate, people you know, know that fermented foods are good for you, but it's actually the short chain fatty acids that are produced during fermentation that are really the power hitters in all of this. Yeah. And that's why, you know, apple cider vinegar, believe it or not, is actually pretty doggone good right. for you. And that doesn't have to be a mystical thing. Oh, it makes you lose weight. Right. Well, it, you know, it, guess what? It's uncoupling your mitochondria. Yes. Drink, drink that kraut juice, you know, get it, yeah. get every last sip because you want those postbiotics um, yeah. that yeah. they're making. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, something you were talking about with the plants and being closer to the sun, having more polyphenols. Really, it's kind of like a takeaway I had was like, we want our plants to have been stressed in a sense. We want them to have had to work harder because we're going to get all those benefits. And in our unfortunate industrial agriculture, monocropping, pesticide-laden world, our plants don't have to work hard. They're just like essentially babied with chemicals and it's just, yeah. And, and so now, so you talk about like two reasons why pesticides and glyphosate and conventional produce is problematic. One that has to do more with like the effect of those chemicals on the mitochondria, and then also the effect of what's happening to our plants. So could you talk a little bit about like conventional produce, soil health, and like how this is just so bad for us on multiple levels? Yeah. You know, plants are, you are what you eat, but you are what the thing you're eating ate. And the plants are not eating what they used to eat. And our soil is so depleted. Um, In one of my lectures, I I show a a picture uh, from a Senate document in 1936 that says, our soil is now so depleted of nutrients that you could eat all day, every day, and never get the essential vitamins and minerals that would reduce health. And, And I say, you know, when was this document? And people guess, you know, and it was 1936. No. Yeah, 1936. We already knew this. Oh, God. Yeah. So bad. It's so bad. Yeah. You know, we, the soil is a living organism as well. And plants have to be delivered their nutrients from the fungi and the bacteria that live in the soil. And they're all gone and everything's gone. And so, yeah, we can we can produce a head of lettuce. It looks like a head of lettuce, but it has nowhere near what it was supposed to have. And you know, luckily Europeans are for the most part a lot smarter than us. And there's really big movements to you know ban Roundup and glyphosate, or um, you know just to not use it at all. But I mean, it's everywhere in us. I mean, it's in our wine. It's in in all of our organic oats. It's, I mean, it's, in, it's everywhere. And then there's also a secondary effect of this chemical on our mitochondria. Is that right? That's like aside, aside from just screwing up our food, like what's it actually doing to our, our cells? Uh, yeah. It looks like it's a pretty cool mito- mitochondrial toxin in its own right. And my, Monsanto didn't bother to tell us that Roundup was actually patented as an antibiotic. Because, yeah. Oh, by the way, because bacteria use the shikimate pathway, which is what plants use. And we don't use it. But, oh, by the way, we just invented an antibiotic that targets the shikimate pathway. And we're not going to tell you, but it's going to kill all of your microbiome because your microbiome uses the shikimate pathway. Have a nice day. Oh, my God. And, and we'll, so let, we'll let people stew about that. Yeah. And, you know, organic plants will have 
more polyphenols. And quite frankly, the more polyphenols in you, the better. Yeah. I've, I have to turn my camera here. I'm gr- I'm now growing some plants inside oh, here. Yeah, cool. So totally pesticide free. Um, but uh, I have a world famous cardiothoracic surgeon on the line here. And so I, I have just a question, like the number one killer in the United States for both men and women is atherosclerotic heart disease. Um, how much of that burden of disease do you think is preventable? Like, do you have a hunch of how much could just be totally avoided if we got like totally cleaned up our diets and lifestyles? Oh, 100%. Seriously, 100%. That's why I changed careers, 100%. Yeah. So so like 700,000 deaths per year. There are people who do not eat like us who do not develop coronary artery disease. I mean, the, the Katavans, one of my favorite people to talk about in Papua New Guinea, they smoke like fiends. And there has never been a recorded coronary artery lesion or a stroke in these people. Uh, and by the way, as I talk about, nicotine is an uncoupler, but please do not smoke. Right. <laughs> well, I think that's a good note to end on because that is a note of empowerment. It is in our control. It is in our control on the tip of our forks, the answer. And um, I am so grateful for the message you are putting out in the world. It has inspired me. It has inspired my career and I know is going to inspire people listening to this conversation. So, um, you're, you're just, you're doing incredible, incredible work. And I, I just want to commend you and thank you so much, Dr. Gundry. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. You won't be able to do what, <laughs> um, uh, any, anything you want to call out in terms of where people should find you, what they should be following? Well, I have the Dr. Gundry podcast and you can find me on YouTube, Instagram. You can find me at drgundry.com. You can find me at my a uh, website for supplements and food, gundrymd.com. And, and you're taking patients? Oh, yeah. we, we I uh, still see patients. I see patients six days a week wow. on the weekends. I've got a, uh, this is Friday. I've got a full schedule tomorrow and Sunday. Yeah. And on the seventh day, I don't rest. I'm at Gundry MD. So I actually work seven days a week. Oh, my gosh. So well, I better have, you know, good uncoupled mitochondria. You better. Yes. And everyone get the book. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.